Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey, everybody. I'm here with an old friend of mine and truly, truly honored and super excited to be here with uh, Chris Gay. Chris, wonderful to have you on this intimate conversation the two of us will have now. And uh, probably a way of introducing yourself, tell us a little bit about like, what do we need to know about Chris? Well, probably the most important thing you need to know is that I am the co-author of the book Blitzscaling. So I like to refer to myself as the apostle of Blitzscaling, traveling around the world, or at least until recent events, traveling around the world, carrying the message. And to carry that message out, in addition to myself, uh, I also have a couple of other organizations that help me do it. One is the Global Scaling Academy, which helps me carry that message around the world. And the other is Blitzscaling Ventures, where I let leverage the ideas of blitzscaling and invest in the world's fastest growing companies. I love it. And uh, I'm particularly interested about uh, blitzscaling ventures, of course, um, as I do think that there's uh, really interesting work to be done. I'm curious, uh, could you give us a quick overview of like, for those of you who haven't read blitzscaling, the book, and I highly recommend reading it for sure. Where does it come from? And what is it? So the term blitzscaling is a word that Reid Hoffman, my co-author and I made up. And we use it to describe the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. And the reason it's very important is we identified that what really sets the modern world apart is the fact that more and more markets are becoming winner-take-most or winner-take-all. It's largely because everyone is connected together. We all have cell phones in our pockets and they have the ability to connect us to anyone else in the world. That's the kind of connectivity that nobody could have even imagined, even in the dawn of the internet era. So we really live in amazing times as far as that goes. And because more and more markets are winner-take-most or winner-take-all, all, what happens is the company or business or organization that is able to achieve critical scale first builds enduring market leadership. They have a competitive advantage that allows them to dominate that market for years or even decades to come. And when those markets have dynamics like that, it's worth almost any price to be the leader. And I think we can see it applied in many different contexts. Even today, uh, we're recording this during the height of what we hope is the height of the coronavirus, novel coronavirus pandemic. And one of the things I've been telling people is when you have a pandemic like this, it is oftentimes very rational to sacrifice efficiency for the sake of speed. Imagine, if you will, that you were buying masks for your healthcare providers. And somebody said, well, if you do a rush order, we can get you masks, but they're going to cost you twice as much. If you're willing to wait two weeks, it'll only cost you half as much. Well, guess what? In that circumstance, it makes no sense whatsoever to save the money because the number of people who are infected is doubling every three days. So that is a clear example where pursuing efficiency, which assumes a world in which things are stable, in which things are relatively static, just doesn't make sense. In a dynamic, fast-changing world, you've got to focus on speed. 
And what I love about the the notion around blitz scaling, and we talked about this quite a bit in, in previous conversations, is it not only applies to startups where it originally comes from, but it does apply to incumbent organizations as well. Absolutely. And I think that there's a misconception that many people who are friends of ours who are just in the startup world have, which is when they picture an incumbent organization, a big established company, maybe one that's been around for decades or even centuries, they picture this giant monolith. They think, here's this big company, it's slow, it's very stodgy, it's going to slowly and steadily grow 5% a year. Well, that's a false perception. Because every company is actually a whole bunch of different business initiatives and units, some of which are growing rapidly, others of which are in decline. And the job of running one of these companies is to balance all of these things. And for managing those new initiatives, the ones which hopefully are going to be transformative for the business, they're going to build out billion-dollar business units, the lessons of blitzscaling absolutely apply. It becomes very important to follow those lessons if you're going to compete with the startups that are trying to do the same thing. I'm curious, uh, for an established company, an incumbent organization, which arguably is probably best at uh, running very efficient and effective organizations, because that's ultimately what they've grown into. And with a certain argument, you can make the same case about a startup as it matures and becomes a scale-up and then eventually becomes an incumbent company. It becomes more efficient and effective at doing what it is doing. How do you either maintain or reinvigorate this idea around blitz scaling? So once you identified your disruptive opportunities, because assume that blitz scaling really applies to disruptive opportunities, how do you get this back into an organization? Well, if you think about it, you look at what are the characteristics of startup companies that enable them to successfully blitz scale, to successfully commercialize disruptive innovations and disruptive products. And there's a couple of things that are really involved. The first is that these organizations tend to be small and nimble. They certainly never have a resource advantage over established companies. Their main advantage is the ability to move quickly. Second, they're able to really tightly focus. They don't have an existing business to defend, so they are all in on building out that new business. And most importantly, the person who is running that organization, generally the founder or CEO of the company, is someone who has control over every element of the user experience, every element of the product experience. Because it can't just be a case of taking something that is already existing and been established for 20 years and saying, well, we'll just lightly put a patina on it and, and sell it with a different brand name. Right? That never works. And so the The thing that a large established organization has to do is they have to say, well, we're not necessarily going to become a startup ourselves, but how can we tap into these startup characteristics in these important initiatives? How do we make sure there's a small, highly dedicated team working on it? How do we make sure that the incentive structures are in place to encourage people to sacrifice by granting great rewards for great success? And how do we make sure that whoever's running this initiative has the appropriate authority and responsibility to actually change the user experience and product experience to meet the market needs. If you think about what startups do really well at the early stage, it's really learning from the marketplace and rapidly adapting and adjusting until they achieve that product market fit that you've all heard about. And so you want to adapt and adopt 
the practices of startups to achieve that product market fit. And then the great thing as an established company is once you've established that product market fit and you've really got something that seems to be working, then the muscles of the large organization can come into play and really help accelerate that growth because the big organization already has experience scaling up. Uh, handling large volumes, being able to reach a mass market. These are all things that established organizations have an advantage with. One uh, particular aspect of this for me is this question around the time it takes to actually build a company. So, you know, we've been both in the in the venture world and in the venture world. You typically say oh, any startup is basically, um, they never overnight successes, right? They always take seven to 10 years to really bake and become the success they become and and become very visible at, at such. Now, what perplexes me personally is this notion around, if you look at a big company, the tenure of the average Fortune 500 CEO is five years and it's currently declining. The tenure of a high potential in a project is often less than two years because we move them around. I mean, big companies pride themselves in having these rotational programs where they take their brightest and best people and put them on a project. And then, you know, like six months later, a year later, or sometimes two years later, they just get moved around. How do you reconcile this with your notion around blitzscaling and the, the importance of leadership in this? So let's tackle those two different elements. One is the top level leadership of the established company or parent company itself. And the other is leadership within the startup initiative or growth initiative. So at the company level, that certainly is a barrier. And one of the things that I've talked about with many audiences at established companies is the need for there to be that high level buy-in into an innovation initiative, whether that's coming from the CEO or even more likely from the board. Because of the fact that it takes a while to know whether a startup is going to succeed or not, you need to have the ability to have patience. And that's not going to happen when you're funding something out of quarterly operating budgets. It has to be something that's done out of the capital budget. And that's something that requires the support of the founder, CEO, board of directors, et cetera, et cetera. In many ways, this is very similar to the traditional venture capital structure, where venture capital funds will invest with the intention of holding that investment seven to 10 years. And you can really borrow borrow from the ideas of venture capital here by staging the commitment instead of giving all the money up front to give you the ability to abandon projects where you learn that perhaps the original idea isn't going to work the way you thought it was. So that's on the leadership side for the established company. Then for the leadership side for the individual innovation initiative, uh, it is, I think, important to make an exception for the leadership of that initiative. Now, one of the interesting things about blitzscaling is an organization may be growing so quickly and the demands of the market and business may be changing so quickly that you're actually churning through your core senior management team on a fairly regular basis. Uh, the example we like to use is to say that the VP of sales who gets you from $0 to a million dollars is probably not the same VP of sales who gets you from 1 million to 10 million and is not the same VP of sales who gets you from 10 million to 100 million and so on and so forth. And so it's actually the case that the two-year limit is not necessarily that big a deal when an organization is growing so quickly because you're often swapping in and out the senior management anyways in order to best leverage people's expertise at a particular, particular stage. 
However, the thing that you don't want to do is to constantly churn through the quote unquote CEO or person leading the initiative because you need someone who has the persistence, who has the moral standing to run that organization. Uh, again, I know that in the past there were times when Silicon Valley said, well, you know, we're going to replace the founder, we're going to bring in gray hair. But I think people have realized that oftentimes the greatest returns come when you allow the person who had the original vision to really realize that vision, plus you supplement them with people around them, him or her, in order to make sure they're able to do that. So I think that it's important to make an exception for the person who's actually the inspiration behind and the person running the organization, but that having the turnover at the other levels, even at the other senior levels, is okay because of the fact that you're going to rapidly need different skills. I'm curious, in terms of when you look at Again, like we're talking mostly around um, established companies. One thing you mentioned earlier also was around the idea around uh, compensation and the alignment of incentives. And uh, I heard you talk about the analogy of uh, rolling the dice when you start a startup or an initiative where the, your chance of success is really fairly low. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? And I'm particularly curious when you think about this it kind of runs into the face of large corporations to actually truly incentivize their people in a way which would look much more like a venture style incentivization, meaning, yes, you take large risks, but at the same time, your potential payoff can be enormous. Yes, that is correct. And I want to give credit for the dice analogy, even though I'm applying it in a slightly different way. And the person I originally got this dice analogy from uh, is our mutual friend and also brilliant guy, Tom Chi. So credit where credit is due, Tom Chi, who does a fantastic job teaching design thinking and has his own fund that is working on investing in companies that are going to solve mankind's biggest problems around climate change. Tom Chi is the original person to credit for the dice analogy. But the analogy is relatively simple, which is that any startup initiative has a relatively low chance of success. As my co-author would say, the default outcome is probably failure or death. And so if you think about that in the context of large organizations which have devoted themselves to reducing the possibility of failure, all of a sudden you see the misalignment. And so the analogy I use is I say, well, let's say I asked you, a high performer at your company, to play a game. And here's the game. I'm going to give you this six-sided die. You're going to roll that die. And if it comes up with a six, the initiative succeeds and you'll be promoted. And if it comes up with anything else, then either your career will stall or will fire you. Now, how many people are going to say, I want to play that game? Not a lot. In fact, it's a pretty, pretty bad set of odds. And so as a result, you look and you wonder, well, why don't people want to lead these innovation initiatives at my company? The reason is you're basically offering them that game. Uh, if you succeed, you get a minor benefit, and if you fail, which is the overwhelmingly probable outcome, you actually stall your career and harm your progression at the company. So it's small wonder it's difficult to get the best people to actually do this. So how does the startup world deal with this? Well, it deals with it in two different ways. The first is there are enormous rewards for success. Entrepreneurs reap much of the benefit of success. They're able to make millions or even billions of dollars if they came up with the right idea and were able to execute on it. So that's a part of it. The incentive-based compensation is essential to overcome the 
high probability of failure. But then the other side of it is, well, you know, how are we able to reduce the chances of failure? How do I make it so it's easier for people to say yes to something like this? And the other side of it is to employ things like design thinking and rapid prototyping, where you essentially get to say, instead of rolling the dice once, what if you could roll the dice 10 times? And if it came up six, then you would be promoted. And if it came up, and if you never came up six, then something bad would happen. Well, all of a sudden, the odds have dramatically improved. And it's because you've had the opportunity to try and learn from failure and iterate and get better. And so that die rolling analogy gives you a sense of how you can actually make these innovation initiatives work, which is to make sure that there are outsized returns and rewards for people who actually succeed at doing something meaningful, but at the same time, encourage them to take an approach which is going to give them as many cracks at that six as possible. It's going to allow them to roll the dice multiple times. It's interesting. I found uh, in conversations with uh, folks over at uh, Alphabet X, formerly Google X, um, that they had a similar issue where their incentive system originally was set up in a way that it really incentivize people based on the outcome of their project, regardless of what they themselves have done, which then led, of course, to the very human behavior that the best people, the smartest people pick the, the easiest projects to take, uh, because that's how you get either your bonus or you get your promotion, right? So they shifted their incentive system to really look at the individual level, as in what did the person do to further the project versus what was the outcome of the project. So the decoupling of people and project, which is hard to do, I think, in simple HR terms. But I'm curious, in the real world, have you seen any incumbent organizations which have been doing this, practicing this, and have been doing it well? Well, unfortunately, this is not something where the really traditional innovation practice has worked super well. Uh, I think that the best analogy, uh, the best example I would give of a company that's actually implemented a fairly systematic way of doing this that succeeded over an extended period of time is actually Cisco Systems. And the funny thing, Cisco, the approach that Cisco took was essentially to outsource this to the venture market. So Cisco Systems, very famous network equipment manufacturer, one of the companies behind sort of the rise of internet infrastructure, enormously successful company over time. Uh, what Cisco did was they, in fact, essentially encouraged employees who had new ideas for new kinds of networking equipment and new products to go and start companies. And they would start these companies and they would raise money from venture capitalists. And then Cisco would look and see once they had actually figured out how to build a better mousetrap, a, a better product or something like that, Cisco would go ahead and buy them, sometimes for enormous amounts of money. But what that was a recognition of was that, hey, here at Cisco, we have this great machine that's good at taking mature products, pushing it out through the channel and monetizing it by selling to the world's companies and organizations and governments. And they said, you know what? That setup is optimized for that efficient process. It's not optimized for innovation. So let's encourage our employees who have great ideas, who want to be innovative, to leave, but with the knowledge that they can come back uh, if they're interested in, and the possibility that if what they do actually succeeds, that they'll make hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars and then be brought back into the fold. So I think that that was an example of a company that very successfully did this over time 
with a variety of innovative projects, uh, but they were in some sense doing it outside the company. How do you overcome in this scenario the eternal fear that you let your people go, um, basically encourage them to leave the company if they want to do something disruptive, so something you can't do or feel you can't do in the core of your company but needs to be done at the edge, that it doesn't end up in the hands of your competitor, right? I mean, it's a very real issue. Yes. Oh, it's a, it is a very real issue, which is why Cisco often invested in those companies to make sure that they were keeping close tabs on those companies. It wasn't just a case of, you know, hey, off you go and we'll see you later at some point in time. But they were actually getting a stake in those companies to start with. And that did present issues. Obviously, uh, there is no way to force a company to accept your acquisition offer. But one of the reasons Cisco was able to do this is because they were leveraging their existing market leadership position. As the market leader, Cisco could afford to outbid everyone else in the marketplace for companies. And because they already knew the people involved, because they already had an investment in the company and thus had been tracking its progress, they could actually be more confident in their bids, in addition to having the financial firepower to outbid other people. So when you have the ability to outbid your competition, and you have the ability to have closely tracked and understood whether or not it's worth it to outbid your competition, you can feel like you're pretty confident that whatever happens, if you want to bring people back, you're going to be able to bring them back. This goes back to an argument which has been been debated for quite a while, at least in the circles I'm part of, um, around this notion around core and edge. Core being the main thing your company does, edge the new things, often the disruptive things. And this is like long-ranging debate about can you actually do stuff which is disruptive inside of the core of the organization, or does it need to be in the edge? Um, in the in the furthest uh, probably uh, scenario is clearly what Cisco is doing, where they push it so far out of the core of the organization that it's not even part of the organization, even legally uh, or financially anymore. I I'm curious, like, what do you where do you land there? I mean, I mean, I, I guess I'm hearing like you're you're also like one of these. People who are like clearly like you have to delineate between core and edge. But I'm, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts around this? And particularly as a leader in an organization, how do you think about it? I do think that this innovation has to happen at the edge. And I think you just have to accept the fact that if your core operations are mature, they're optimized for something very different than what is necessary for conducting something that's truly innovative. Uh, because your core operations are focused on efficiency and the innovative side is focused on flexibility. And it, you just cannot optimize for two different functions at once. It's just not going to work. So... Uh, I think what you end up doing is you end up figuring out ways to create connectivity between core and edge. It's not being done at the core, but you try to give some kind of visibility by the core into the edge and by the edge into the core. Now, let me explain. So one of the things I've written about is that it's really important for an innovation initiative to have its senior leader, its uh, project manager, CEO, whatever you want to call it, integrated into the management structure of the core. And the reason is 
you need there to be that relationship. It's not just about information transfer, because obviously you can just write reports in theory, but reports are not enough. It really depends on the relationships between the individual people. And so having the person who is in charge of innovation on the edge integrated into the management of the core allows that person to really understand what are the needs of the core, what are the overall strategic objectives of the organization, and allows them to have those personal relationships that help moderate the decision-making process when the company has to decide things like, well, when do we bring things in from the edge over to the core? Or can we decide whether this edge innovation is something that makes sense to integrate with the core or not? On the other hand, you know, you also are, by bringing in the leadership of the edge to the core management, giving core management more of the experience. One of the big problems I've seen with these innovation initiatives is a big company will say, we're going to get into the lean startup, we're going to go ahead and, and make sure there's all this innovation at the company. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have the senior managers who spend day-to-day working on the core make the decisions about which projects to proceed with. And it's logical in one sense, because like, well, we want our top people to make these decisions. And of course, our top people we've brought in and we have them assigned to them responsibility for the core business operations of the company. But that emphasis on efficiency and continuity is almost exactly the wrong experience for judging startups. And so these well-intentioned efforts go awry because they essentially set in place a set of judges who have no experience and no insights into what is actually going to work from an innovation perspective. It's a super tricky situation, right? Because it brings up, for me, it brings up this interesting question around, we both lived in, I used to live, you live in Silicon Valley. And in Silicon Valley, we have a lot of these innovation labs from these big corporations, right? Like, as a German, I can tell you, it's like there's like basically no large German company which doesn't happen to have a Silicon Valley lab. And they always feel... Uh, quite frankly, a little bit like innovation theater to me. You walk in there, you know, like they look cool and they've got a 3D printer in a corner. And I'm curious, uh, in terms of like, how do you, like from your experience, like how do you do this? Like how do you actually, outside of the Cisco example, which is clearly like pushing it all the way to the edge, if you want to do it internally, have you seen these lab models work or how would you set this up? So I think that you and I have shared many of the same experiences in working with the unreasonable group and working with some of the supporters of the unreasonable groups, the Barclays Global, the Johnson and Johnsons, the Pearsons of the world. And I really do feel like the model that the unreasonable team has put together is really effective for doing this. And the insight here is it, it, it ties in with what I was saying earlier about connecting the core to the edge, which is the connectivity is not just informational, the connectivity is also personal. And so what the Unreasonable Group does is it actually puts on these events. Uh, There will be uh, an event, for example, for a set of startups that are having an impact on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And what the Unreasonable Group will do is they will bring in entrepreneurs, they'll also bring in mentors, they'll also bring in executives from these big organizations. And 
The participation of the executives from the big organizations is a big part of it, not just because they are bringing a perspective and resources to those startups, although of course that is very valuable, but I would argue what's even more valuable is for those executives to develop those personal relationships and have the personal experience of what the innovative mindset is like, what the founder mindset is like. They understand at a visceral level from having you know spent time, eight, 12, 16, 20 hours a day with people who are in the thick of things, they all of a sudden have a much better understanding of what's going on. The issue with the innovation theater of the research institution or research lab is that the research lab is fine, but whatever happens in that lab never actually makes an impression on the senior leadership of the company itself. And so how do you expect the lab to have an impact on innovation if nobody who makes decisions actually goes there or goes there for more than just a, an hour-long meeting where they pose and have a photo opportunity? It really boils down to are the leaders of the company getting direct experience of the innovation mindset, of the founder mindset. And the best way to do that is to surround them with people who already have that mindset and to have them work together. Can't underline enough how important, um, also out of my experience, the experience we have at Be Radical, like this whole notion around mindset and immersion and really deeply understanding not just the mechanics, but also the, the connective tissue uh, which happens in an innovation, a truly innovation scenario, like a startup, for example, is. And let me, let me just add to that because I want to underscore this for the listeners. If you think about how a typical kind of event goes, what happens? You have a conference and you have some speakers and you send someone to the conference and they listen to the speakers on the stage and the speakers tell some stories and they, they get some you know nuggets or takeaways they may take back to the organization. And if, if you're lucky, they make a presentation to the organization or circulate a memo and that's all that happens. And what is the net impact of that? Well, generally the impact is zero. Contrast instead with people going someplace for a couple of days, but instead of sitting around listening to other people talk, they're actually working together with people who already have that innovation mindset, who may not even be able to articulate what's in that mindset, but just by the way they go about things are modeling it and giving people that visceral experience. There's just such a big difference between listening to people talk about stuff and actually doing this stuff in conjunction with people who already know how to do it, who already have that mindset. Yeah. Tom Chi, our, our friend um, whom you already mentioned, once told me thinking isn't doing. Yes. What a wonderful, wonderful statement. Uh, we cannot underscore that enough. Absolutely. Chris. Let me wrap this. It was absolutely wonderful to have you on this inaugural session we're recording. If when people want to go out and find out more about you, probably bring you in or learn more about Blitzscaling, of course. So first of all, uh, go to your bookstore uh, of choice, um, preferably your local bookstore, and get a copy of Blitzscaling. Uh, but what are the other ways people can be in touch with you and or learn more about your methodology and your probably your venture fund, as well as your teachings and uh, learnings? 
Excellent. So the place to start with is just chrisye.com, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. And you can find links to many of the things that I have going on in my life. If you are specifically trying to figure out how to apply the lessons of blitzscaling to your organization, you should visit globalscalingacademy.com and we can help you figure out how to apply these ideas. If you're interested in blitzscaling ventures, that's just at blitzscaling blitzscalingventures.com and blitzscaling is spelled B-L-I-T-Z-S-C-A-L-I-N-G. Fantastic, Chris. Thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with, uh, with all your endeavors and keep the world uh, scaling a little better and faster than it currently is. Hey, this is Pascal again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Chris Ye about blitzscaling. This is the first of many conversations we are going to have with thought leaders and practitioners about innovation and disruption. Join us on Slack and let us know what you think. And until next time.